prayer. Father in heaven, thank you that, as the song says, we can trust you. Thank you that you have proven yourself trustworthy. Bless Lord as he brings what you laid in his heart this morning, that our hearts can be drawn closer to you, and that we can um, worship you together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you see it? Good morning and welcome to each one that is gathered here to worship with us this morning. Um, today's message will be, um, I think, the last message on our church values. I think all the other pastors have shared, t- taken their turn sharing the one that they were chosen for. And so today's going to be uh, kind of a wrap-up message for our church values. And I think it's fairly fitting um, that this one is the last one that we covered. Before we get started here, could I get somebody to turn off the fan up here? I have a candle that I'm going to be lighting, and so I think this fan is going to make it a little difficult to keep it lit. (laughs) So if somebody could do that, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. You know, as we've taken a look at these values over the last few months, I hope that these values have become more to you than just four bullet points written on a piece of paper, but that these truths from Scripture have become real to each one of us and that they guide us as we live our lives here in this community and guide our church here at Crystal Valley. You know, the first one was our relationship with Jesus Christ and the love for His Word and a commitment to scriptures and being together, families. And today's message is the last one, which is being a salt and light to the world. And the description for that one reads, We do this when we display the love of Christ in the way we love and care for each other, by building relationship with people in our community so that they can see Christ in our lives and we can bring the gospel to them. We also seek opportunity to give support to and be involved in missions that take the message of the gospel to the world. So I think that point is the culmination of the first few. You know, what value is a relationship with Jesus Christ and love for his word, a commitment to the scripture, and being together if it does not affect our daily lives moving forward? It needs to affect the way we live in our day-to-day life. So I brought a little bit of salt with me today just for a little display here, and then I'm going to be lighting a candle here. Maybe just a few visuals to help us visualize what we're talking about here today. So the, the idea of salt and light, the scripture I think that really helps us to see what um, is meant by that is found in Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is where we'll be looking at today. <clears throat> I'm not going to be reading the chapter, um, the the complete chapter today for the sake of time. 
I think is a very familiar passage to most of us. And so we'll focus in on verses 13 to 16. Verses 13 to 16 will be the verses that I read. But we'll think about the, the context of chapter 5 and the broader context here as we think about this subject of salt and light. Reading Matthew five thirteen to 16, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Ye are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it, on a, put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. <clears throat> Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So just to give a little bit of context to these verses here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus was just in the beginning stages of his ministry. He had called a few of his disciples, and he was going about the countryside preaching repentance and calling, calling people to repentance and preaching the kingdom of heaven. He was proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven was now here. God had used the nation of Israel, over, uh, the nation of Israel and his prophets as a gateway to introduce Jesus, the Messiah, to the world. Jesus was now here. He was here to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. And he talks about in chapter 5, as he begins his message here, he talks about him being the fulfillment of the law. He didn't come to destroy it. He didn't come to put it away, but he came to fulfill it. He came to bring it to its fullness. The law in the Old Testament structure had been lacking something. Jesus was that final piece of the puzzle, and he was here now to bring God's plan of restoration to pass. He went about Galilee, and he went about into their synagogues, preaching this gospel of the kingdom, healing the sick, and bringing people to wholeness again. Those that were possessed with devils um, and had you know, major issues in their lives, he was bringing their brokenness and sickness and taking that and turning it into restoration and making them whole again. And people flocked to hear him. They flocked to hear this message of the gospel. And as I was thinking about that in chapter 4, verse 25, it it tells us where some of these people were coming from. They came from Galilee, they came from Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and from beyond. And, you know, that we just kind of take that and, and don't think about it too much. But if you stop and think about how far Jerusalem was from Galilee... It's quite a trek. It was about 100 miles, and, and to us, 100 miles doesn't mean a whole lot. But I just, for reference, I looked up a town that's about 100 miles from here, and that would be about Batavia. So consider walking to Batavia to hear a preacher. Um, that was some serious interest and some serious dedication that these people had. And in our world, um, that's kind of hard to wrap our minds around walking that far, but it would be like us, you know, same amount of time to drive to Salt Lake City to hear a preacher. And so that gives us some context of the interest that these people had in what the message of 
Jesus was. And so as he begins his message here, he talks about the Beatitudes in the first few verses, and then he uses this analogy of salt and light. So we ask the question, why did Jesus use salt? And I think he used that word because of the preservation and preserving effect that salt has on something. You know, nowadays we have refrigerators, we have freezers and things to preserve our food in. But in their day, they didn't have those conveniences. And salt was a way of preserving things. And so salt preserves And I think that is a good picture of what the kingdom of God does to this world. God's kingdom has a preserving, life-giving effect on this world. And as men and women come into that kingdom, first of all, their lives are preserved. They're preserved from eternal death. We are given new life again. We are drawn back from eternal punishment and death. So first of all, it preserves our own lives. And then as we let Christ flow through us, it has a preserving effect on society. Each one of us here today has an effect on our community. You know, sometimes we think our lives are very small and insignificant. But I've seen even a child have, by a word they spoke or something, it has an effect on the way an adult lives his life. So... Don't think that your life does not have an effect on someone else's choices. Our deeds and actions, our words, either build someone up, bless them, or they cause them to feel defeated. A kind word or a simple smile can change the course of someone's day. And so we need to be gracious even when we feel people don't deserve it. You know, many times we're unaware of the struggles in someone else's life. And as the children of God, we're called to be that preserving effect in our difficult world. We're called to build up those who are in a difficult place in their life. But that preserving effect doesn't come from ourselves. It is as as we allow Christ to live within us. You know, God sent Jesus to this earth to... Bring his kingdom to pass, not only to grant us salvation, but for us to demonstrate a way of life that we are to follow, and for others to follow as well. And God reveals that through Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount. He lays out a pattern of life for us that has a preserving effect on this this earth. You know, how much of the pain, the hunger, the heartache, and the devastation that we experience in this world today is because we choose to walk away from these principles. You know, think about Ukraine, for example. You know, God's principles, you know, as we see at the end of chapter 5, is, is so different than the act of war. God has a better way for us. Jesus taught us a better way when he was here on the earth. The way of, God, the way of God's kingdom brings life. It brings peace, not death and destruction. So it's truly tragic when we see those who profess to be followers of the ways of God's kingdom, using and participating in the, those same tactics of coercion and force. We are called to honor those who are in authority, but God calls his people to a different way. So I just want to think for a few minutes about how we are salt. 
what are some ways, practical ways in our own life that we can be salt? And most of these come from chapter 5 here. And the first one I want to look at is taken from verse 19. It talks about obedience to the scripture. Jesus calls us to obey the commands of God. It says, Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least of these commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do, shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was accused numerous times of violating the law. But here Jesus makes it clear in this, in this section of verses that he didn't come to destroy what his father had given so many years before. But he came as a fulfillment to, to all that, that God had done over the years. Jesus didn't come to bring it to an end, but to bring it to its fulfillment, to make it whole again. The reason our world is so full of corruption and decay now is because of disobedience. Adam and Eve chose to disobey the principles of God in the garden. He gave them you know, this one instruction, you know, don't eat from that tree, and they chose to disobey. And that has introduced this corruption into the world. His caused so many so much pain and anguish to mankind over the years so we can see here that obedience to God's principles are are vital for us as we strive to be salt in our communities <clears throat> and I appreciated uh, a few thoughts that were shared in, in Sunday school this morning where um, Marvin was sharing how not only are God's principles um, pleasing to God but they're also good for us and, and that's one thing I was struck with is as I studied these verses how God's principles are good. And in verse 20 he talks about our righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And that's an, that's an interesting statement that Jesus makes there. What does he mean by that? And I think what he means by that is that it needs to be um, a part of our, the core of who we are. It needs to be, this obedience needs to be a heartfelt obedience, not simply an outward obedience. The Pharisees, um, they, they tried to force outward obedience. They tried to bring about righteousness through legislation. They tried to make laws to, to bring people into obedience to Scripture. But that doesn't work. We need to have a heart that is turned toward God. They wanted to establish earthly kingdoms and forgot to focus on the, he- on the heavenly. And that's a path that is so easily for us to walk on. You know, we as human beings, we see what is in the here and now, and it's hard for us to focus on the future and the things that we can't touch and feel. And this is the trap that the Pharisees had fallen into, was focusing on simply the outward um, behaviors and not changing what our heart is. The second point is love your brothers and sisters, and we see that in verse 22. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Rachel, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. There's a, a scripture verse that tells us what, there's going to be a sign that tells people that we are truly a child of his. 
That sign is that we love each other. That's found in John 13, 35. You know, our human nature and our old man within us wants to put ourselves first. But the kingdom of God, the testimony that we are truly his children is by our love for each other. You know, Jesus here in this verse in Matthew 5, 19 shows us the seriousness of our attitudes toward our brothers and sisters and the words we use um, in, in speaking about them. Using names and terms that demean and put down others is not a part of the way of Christ. Jesus is revealing to us that his kingdom, in his kingdom, the things that he calls us to are far superior to the law. The law prohibited murder. You know, the Ten Commandments tell us to not murder. But here it cuts to the very heart of the issue. It cuts to our attitudes toward our brothers. And if we take care of the attitude of our hearts, the desire to murder our brother will be taken care of. You know, if we rid our minds of attitudes of superiority and contempt, our heart will be right toward our brother. And we will want to restore our relationships instead of destroy them. And we can see that in verses 23 to 26 of of Matthew 5. And then like I spoke about in my last message is committed marriages. Strong marriages are important to God. And we see that in verses 27 to 32 of this chapter. Marriage portrays the relationship Christ has with his people in the church. So it is imperative that we as believers represent that loving relationship with Christ as with his people. Strong, committed marriages also provide strong homes for children. The home is a critical avenue through which the next generation learns of the ways of God. And Jesus also showed his love for the children as he was here on the earth. He, in the care and protection of children is near and dear to his heart. In verses 33 and 37, we see that he talks about our speech He comes back to the words that we say. You know, our our words say a lot about who we are. In Matthew 12, speaking of the Pharisees, he stated, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And in the same passage, he also says that we will be held accountable even for every idle word that we say. And our words will either condemn us or justify us. You know, our thoughts and attitudes of our hearts will flow out through our words. Words are powerful. You know, we can have good words most of the time, but every once in a while, if there is, if there is a bad attitude in our hearts, those words are going to slip out. As I was thinking about our words, you know, one of the things we think about is how many words do we say a day? And so I started looking, you know, at that a little bit. And I... I I found a few points from, I don't know if any of you know what LinkedIn is, but it's kind of a uh, social media site for, for business owners and people involved in business. And I thought there, uh, there was an instructor on there that I th- thought had a, lot of, had a few good points. The average person speaks at least 7,000 words a day with many, with some of us speaking more than that. So just think about what that means. Those 7,000 words that you speak each day are your imprint on the world. They dictate how people perceive you and largely define you. So this instructor asked us to reflect on yesterday and ask ourselves these three questions. How many of these words 
that you spoke yesterday showed that you you to be a confident communicator. He's he's a uh, communication instructor. How many of these words that you spoke yesterday made a difference to those around you? A positive difference? How many of those words serve little or no purpose at all? My answer in order, very few, not too many, and too many. Immediately it causes me to reflect and yearn to make the 7,000 plus words I speak each day mean more. And I think that's probably a desire of each one of us has, that our words would have a positive influence in our lives. Scripture also states that our speech needs to be with grace and seasoned with salt, according to Colossians 4, 6. So here again, we see the word salt used. What does that mean to season our words with salt? I think there again, it has a preserving effect. Do our words have a preserving effect on other people? And also, I think when we think about salt, it, it makes our food more palatable and pleasant. Do our words make, are our words spoken in a way that are palatable and present? Do they have a preserving relationship? Do they have a preserving effect on our relationship with each other here in the church? You know, sometimes when we think about being, our words being palatable and pleasant, you know, sometimes we think that I, I just need to tell the truth, and that is, that is so, but our words also need to be spoken in such a way that they are, that are well-received. We can say the truth in a way that is, is palatable, or we can say the truth in a way that has a destructive effect on our relationships. And in our modern day, there's, there's another world where we need to be uh, mindful of our words, and that's where, that's on the online world. You know, the online algorithms, they feed off negativity, so we can very easily be drawn into speaking negatively to people that we don't see face-to-face. It's so much easier to say negative things, to say destructive things, when we're not face-to-face with someone you know, be it through um, messages, text messages, or, or social media, whatever. But we need to be mindful of the words we speak, even when we are engaged in conversations in those spheres, that our words are upbuilding. And then also, Jesus teaches us to love our enemies. <clears throat> and the term we often use when we think about this topic is non-resistance. But I like to think of it now, as I've heard it said, the people of God live out ideal resistance. You know, it's not, you know, when we think about non-resistance, it can make us feel like we're very, just sitting by, being very passive. But I think loving our enemies is a very active thing. We're not just sitting by and letting things happen, but we're engaging with our enemies. We're being kind to them. We're, we're praying for them as these these words here in Matthew five thirty-eight to 48 tell us we're called to bless them, we're called to pray for them. And there's many examples of that throughout, throughout history. This morning I brought along a picture I have. And this is a, probably a story that many of you know well. I think this man, Dirk Willems, was an example, very good example for us to consider as we think about relating to our enemies. You know, Dirk not only loved his enemy in his mind, in his heart, 
But he loved his enemy so much that he went back and saved him from death in a cold, icy river that day. You know, he could have escaped, he could have kept running, but instead he turned back, and that is not what our natural man desires to do. And I think that is only possible as our heart is filled with the love of Christ, is to turn back and save our enemy from certain death. And I think that was a prime example of someone being a salt in his community. And as the world looks at Dirk, they probably say he was the loser in the situation. He ultimately was burned at the stake in a very horrific manner. The wind was blowing in a, in a way that day that it actually blew the fire away from him. So his death was prolonged, and it was, it was a very cruel death. But in the end, he was the victor. You know, there's, there's men that have died on the battlefield in dedication to their country. And I think here, Dirk, he died in the battlefield of a spiritual battle. He was a brave soldier who stood strong for his king, Jesus Christ. He did not let, you know, the attacks from Satan take him down, but he stood strong. He was an overcomer like Chad shared about the man the other day who was he was killed in the Colosseum. Dirk was a man just like him. And you know, that is in stark contrast to some of the things we see nowadays where churches are suing people, unfortunately. And it is it breaks my heart when I see things like that, that the house of God would do things like that. And so I think we need to look at Scripture. We need to look at men like Dirk to motivate us to love our enemies, even though it is a very difficult thing to do. The next thing I want to look at is authentic and humble living. And this comes from Matthew 6, when it talks about fasting, it talks about alms, it talks about our prayers. You know, there's a danger of doing the good things of God to draw attention on ourselves. And here Jesus talks about humility in our lifestyle. The way of God's kingdom is humility and authenticity. I'm just going to go through a few of these quick in, in Matthew 6. It also talks about our treasure, where our treasure is. As we are a part of the kingdom of God, as we are salt in our community, it will affect where our treasure is, what we will spend our time and our energy in building. And this earthly, the earthly treasures that we can spend so much time on will quickly fade away. Cornelius Vanderbilt is one of the greatest examples of this. He was one of the greatest industrialists of the late 19th century, and he amassed an enormous fortune. His fortune was valued at $100 million when he died, which was equal to the half of the U.S. Treasury at the time. Incredibly, his son doubled that fortune in eight years to $200 million. That would be worth $400 billion in today's dollars. But within 50 years of the father's death, Cornelius' death, the family fortune was completely gone. All that hard work was completely gone in a few short years. But we can be rest assured that our energy is spent on the heavenly kingdom. Those treasures will endure forever. Also, a heart of forgiveness, as we see in Matthew 6.15, we see that God's forgiveness for us is a reflection of our willingness to forgive those who have offended and hurt us. You know, our unwillingness to forgive 
has a direct effect on God's willingness to forgive us. If we carry the burden of bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts, our life and our efforts to be salt in our, to those around us will be hindered. And also Jesus warns us against a critical and judgmental spirit in Matthew 7. So those are just a few quick practical points I think we can, we can live out in our communities as salt. And there's so much more in these passages here that we could, we could look into and I encourage you to look at. But I want to shift our focus a little bit for a few minutes on Jesus' analogy of light. And what is the purpose of light? You know, as we think about salt, that was a, we think about a preserving effect, keeping things in a, in a good state. <clears throat> but as we think about light, light illuminates and it helps to restore. It brings vision back again. Without light, we stumble and fall in the darkness. You know, if we try to do a job in, in a dark corner, it's very difficult to do without light. And in our inability to see, we often make mistakes and we struggle. But light brings clarity to the, to the situation. You know, without light, things die as well. Without light from the sun, plants die. You can have a plant that is in, in great soil, has lots of water, but if you cover that plant up for a while, take it away from the light of the sun, it will die from the lack of light. <clears throat> and these things apply to our spiritual life as well. And when we're walking the path of life in darkness, we're going to trip and fall. We're going to go down the wrong path, and we will lose our way. We'll mistakenly take the wrong way because our vision is impaired. So we first of all need the light of Christ in our life to bring clarity to our lives. But Jesus, as Jesus says here that we are the light of the world, we need to remember also that this light is not coming from within us. This light is coming from Christ We are simply reflectors of the true source of light. It is a reflection of our relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the moon, reflects the sun. So we are reflectors of Jesus Christ. (coughs) You know, as Moses' face shone, it was not because of who he was, but it was because he had been in the company of God. So our light will shine from our life as we have a close relationship with Jesus Christ. What are we doing with that light that Jesus has brought to us? And he uses the picture of a city on a hill. Why does, why does he give us that picture? As we think about that, a city on a dark night up on a hill, there is no way that you're going to hide that. And I think what Jesus is trying to point out here is in this broken world, a person committed to serving him will not be able to hide their relationship with Jesus Christ. We are like a city on a hill. We are like a lighthouse. We are like this candle up here. It is meant to shine. It is not meant to be covered up. He uses, he talks about, you know, us. we don't light a candle and then put a cover over it right away to hide the light. You know, we don't turn these lights on in the building, and then quickly cover them up. We want the light to shine. And so I think this is what Jesus is telling us here, is that we want the light of Christ to shine forth from our lives. And what is, why do we want to do that? And he tells us the reason for this is so that we let our light shine so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And... 
in, in our modern world, we see that letting our light shine so that people could see our good works. We don't like to hear that. Um, modern Christianity has made good works um, a negative thing. Yes, it has focused so much on just our salvation experience and has forgotten that the work of Christ in our life will have an outpouring. There will be fruit from that. There's a mentality that we should avoid good works. And I think some of that comes from John three nineteen through 20, where it talks about people, the darkness does not want the light because the deeds were darkness. You know, when there's darkness in our heart, we don't like the light because we are, and exposes the darkness. The light exposes the darkness in our life. But our relationship with God as a believer is so much more than just salvation. And when we do what is only essential to be saved, we miss the point and the blessing of the good news of the gospel. John Wesley made this statement. He said, wherever this doctrine of easy believism is received, it leaves no place for holiness. It makes men afraid of personal holiness, afraid of cherishing any thought of it. For they fear that any step toward holiness might be denial of the faith and a rejection of Christ and his righteousness. So instead of being zealous for good works, works are a stench in their nostrils. In short, they are more afraid of the works of God than the works of the devil. And this was, statement was made in the 1700s, and I think it is even more true today. I was a little nervous about talking about this, this subject of good works because it's such a tricky tricky subject to talk about because we need to be careful that we do not rely on our own good works for salvation. Good works on our own are not our salvation. Good works are as we experience Christ in our lives, there will be an outpouring of him working through us. And the ultimate purpose of that is that as we see at the end of verse 16, they Others may see this and glorify your Father which is in heaven, and we need to keep that in the forefront of our mind. Am I doing this for my own glory, or am I doing it for the glory of God? God is glorified as we live out the principles he has laid out for us here. So I think we need to to keep that in the forefront of our mind, that this is for the glory of God. And 1 Peter 2.12 also confirms that. It says, Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the days of visitation. So here again we see that the purpose is not for our own glory. It's not for our own benefit, but it is for the glory of God. We are to do these things for God's honor and for God's glory. You know, our, our, the fruit of, of a changed life is a testimony of God's saving power. You know, if we claim to be a believer, but we do not produce the fruits of God, we bring a reproach to the name of God. You know, we deny the power of God to work within us and change us from that darkness into light. We, we have lost the sal- saltiness. And in verse 13 it says, if we have lost our saltiness, we are to be cast out. So it is, it is important and it is imperative that we allow Christ to flow in us, not to justify ourselves, but to honor our Father in heaven. So as we think about light, a few, clo- a few conclusions on that. Christ dwelling within us is not intended to be hidden. Christ wants to shine forth in us, and that is how we show glory to God.
The child of God will produce fruit that reveal him to the world, not ourselves. It is not ourselves we are trying to get, draw glory to, but it is God. And God didn't simply save us to save us from eternal death, but he intends for us to be a life that reflects his goodness and his light to the world. So just a few thoughts in, in closing. As I was thinking about this, of, of the thing of salt and light, how many of us would want to live in a world without salt and light in a physical sense? And I don't think any of us would like to. We would, I wouldn't want to go without salt in my food, and I would definitely not want to go without light in the world. And so I think as, as people of God, as people who, who desire to be a part of God's kingdom, that we need to let Christ flow us so that there is salt and light in the world as a, in a spiritual sense too. We need to allow Christ and his principles change our hearts and lives. Jesus, as he is closing out his, his message here on the, uh, the mountainside, he presents us with a picture of two men. One man built his house on a solid foundation. He said the, the person that takes these teachings that he had just presented and builds his life on them is like a man who built his house on a solid foundation. The winds of time, the storms, the difficult things in life that we face will not be able to tear that house down. But the man who ignores these teachings is like the man who builds his house on the sand. Difficult things come along, the hard things come, the winds pound against that house, and it is quickly destroyed. So Jesus is telling us here that these, these principles that he has given us here are principles that will help us to be strong and firm in him and help us to be salt and light to our communities. So with these thoughts, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent Jesus to be an example for us, to teach us your ways, to teach us your truths. And I just pray now that you would give us the power through your Holy Spirit to live for you, to be drawn to you, to live out your holiness through your power. And I just pray that you would help us to be salt and light to our communities, to those in our world, as we allow your love and your light to flow through us. We just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Ken, do you have a closing song? Yeah, let's stand together and sing uh, This Whole Light of Mine. We'll sing three verses. Don't